Good morning. We're in Genesis chapter 22. So if you will open your Bibles there, I have the verses on the screen if you want to follow along. And the outline is on the back of your bulletin. Genesis chapter 22 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It's important because it's an example of uh, complete faith in God. It's important because it's a, it illustrates God's sacrificial love for us. And it's important because it challenges us to put our trust in the goodness of God even when our faith is severely tested. I put it on the top of your study guide and on the screen as well, James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Abraham's faith illustrates this. Under this trial, remember God had promised to Abraham that even in his old age, he would have this son. And through this son, all the nations would be blessed. Abraham believed this faith. But his faith had to be tested. And it was tested. One test after another. He had to leave his homeland. To go to a place that God would show him. He didn't know where he was going. That was his test. He had to endure famine. Not knowing when the rain would come. He had to wait for his son to be born. Not knowing when God would fulfill that promise. He waited 25 years. But Genesis 22 records the most severe test of all. Abraham is instructed to sacrifice his son. Let's look at this story and then see how we can learn from it today. Genesis 22 opens like this, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. It's good to note this. This was a test, and God was testing him. Now, a school principal can have a fire drill uh, or tornado drill, and he may be the only one in the building that knows it's a drill. It may cause some anxiety to those who, they're not sure if the building's on fire or is there a tornado. The building's not going to burn because he knows it's just a test. God is forming a test of Abraham's faith, but God does not actually require the sacrifice of his son. Let's keep reading. Genesis 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Abraham must have been stunned to hear this command of God, this unreasonable command of God. Because God had promised that through Isaac all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So how could that happen if Abraham obeyed God and took his life? Now, the pagan nations around Abraham at this time, human sacrifice was not that unusual. But Abraham knew human sacrifice was not the will of God. So was God changing the rules? Had God changed his mind? Also note that Abraham dearly loved his son Isaac, and God knew that very well. It says there in the text, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, we remember Abraham had another son by a servant, Hagar, but Ishmael had been dismissed the house, you might say, for disciplinary reasons. So Isaac was the only son left in the house. He was the son of promise. So the chapter begins, the ESV says, after these things. Some translations say, sometimes later, or it came to pass. So the question rises is, how old was Isaac when it says, after these things, or sometime later? 
Most scholars, we don't know for sure, but they guess that he was at least in his mid-teens and maybe as old as early 30s. The Hebrew word in verse 5, elsewhere in the Bible, is translated lad or boy. So we can easily imagine this father and son, they had grown to love each other. Did all the things a father and son would do. They would hunt together and fish together and, and talk about life together. They'd work together and worship together. I can even imagine when it was the right time for Isaac for to have that father-son talk about that other son, Ishmael. What happened to him? Where is he? But how could God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son whom he loved so dearly? What an unreasonable command. I don't know how you explain or describe a parent's love for a child. I can only say, being on both sides of that, that you almost have to be one to really know that. That love that is just instant from the moment you know you're going to have that baby. Even after they're grown and gone, the love a parent has for a child is something. Elizabeth Stone is quoted as saying, Make the decision to have a child. It is momentous. It is to decide forever to have your heart go walking around outside your body. Can you imagine Abraham hearing this command from God? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, we can easily imagine Abraham protesting. No, wait, there's got to be another. Did I hear you right? But there's no, no record of that. Abraham obeyed unconditionally. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning settled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He didn't delay. He didn't have to be told twice. This is the same Abraham as we studied last week when he heard about God's plans to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, went to bat for them, praying for them, save them. We don't read that here. He obeyed. Now, I want to show you how he did that in just a moment, but let's keep reading the story for now. Verse 3 continues, And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him, Mount Moriah, that he mentioned earlier. Very place centuries later where the temple in Jerusalem was going to be built, where thousands of animals would be slain as a part of their worship, their sacrifice. Same ridge of hills that contained Calvary where Jesus Christ would be killed. This whole story of Abraham Offering Isaac is a prefiguration of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Keep reading verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now when we think of worship, we may think of singing and praying and communion, maybe time studying God's word. But worship in its purest form is offering your best to God. Romans 12, 1, you know this verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's giving your best. It's giving your all. So the purest form of worship is when we surrender our wills to the will of God. Abraham said to the others, we're going to worship, and then we are going to return to you. Now, Abraham is not lying. And the way he said that to those other two that were there. And he wasn't trying to be tricky with his words so to deceive Isaac so he wouldn't grab a clue as to what was going on. Abraham's faith had grown so strong that he believed God's promise to the point that God, if he did go through 
with allowing Abraham to slaughter his son, God would bring him back to life. Now, we don't know that from Genesis 22 because it doesn't say that in this text. But the writer of Hebrews mentions this. Chapter 11, that great faith chapter. Look what he says in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham's faith was so strong, even though he'd never seen it done before. He believed that God could bring Isaac back to life. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. Jesus was going to carry the wood of the cross up the hill of Calvary. You just see the, the, the resemblances throughout the story. So they went both of them together, and Isaac said to the father Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Note here that Isaac is familiar with worship. He didn't say, Why are we carrying all this wood? What are we going to do? What's that fire about? He understood what was going to happen. Now, parents, when you get ready to worship, I'm thinking your kids are not saying, Hey, where are we going? Hopefully, they know this is normal for you. This is what you do on Sunday when you come to worship. But more than just coming to church, Parents, do your children feel comfortable coming to you and saying, can we pray together? Mom, I need you to pray about this. Dad, would you ask God to help? Isaac and Abraham had worshipped together before. Isaac knew what to expect. Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When I read through this, and I can only imagine as Abraham is knowing what was going to happen, hearing the question, just trying to hold back the emotion as he's talking to his son. But his answer was truthful one, as he believed that God somehow would make a way. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, keep in mind, again, mid-teens, maybe older 20s, maybe bigger, stronger than Abraham. But there's no mention of his resistance. Somehow, Isaac doesn't try to stop him. There's no talk about him trying to escape. Quite a clear symbol of the Son of God talking about how he willingly gave his own life. John 10, 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Isaac evidently permitted his son, I mean his father, to tie him on top of this altar. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. can only imagine that hand trembling at that moment, holding the knife. Even at that moment, if not out loud, thinking, God, you've got to do something. I need you to do something. You've got to do something. The whole time as he grabs the knife, never before has such a loving father and obedient son 
been put to such a test. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Abraham loved Isaac, but somehow was able by this willingness to obey God to prove he loved God more. But just then Abraham was erupted, verse 11. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Anytime you see it repeated, you know it's urgent. But never was there a more welcome interruption to worship. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the rams. And we read this and we remember Abraham had answered Isaac's question saying God would provide a lamb. He looks up and there is a ram, an, an older lamb, an older sheep. But Abraham was speaking prophetically. Not necessarily about a ram that did appear. He was talking about the lamb of God that would appear. Remember how John the Baptist introduced Jesus for the first time? The lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Abraham went, looked, took the ram, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, meaning Jehovah Jireh, as it is said this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the first time that a substitute sacrifice is mentioned in the Bible. And just as that ram died in Isaac's place, Jesus Christ would die in our place. Well, Abraham passed the tests, and God was so pleased at him he places a blessing, verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. I understand that with the naked eye you can count almost 3,000 stars on a clear night. But I wonder for a long time if that passage, that saying, must have sounded like something that was so bizarre, some unscientific. But now with powerful telescopes, we've discovered there's not just thousands of stars. There are millions of stars and galaxies. One astronomer speaking in the science journal, not knowing about this passage, said this. There may be as many stars in the universe as there are grains of sand along the seashore of the Pacific Ocean. God was promising to Abraham there would be many descendants. And it was not just of the Jewish nation. It would be to all the people, all the nations of the earth, through his seed, Jesus Christ. Children, when you sing the song, Father Abraham had many sons, sir, and many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them and so are you. Well, how are we a son of Father Abraham? Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Abraham, Isaac, after this moment, walking down from the mountain, that journey home. Never was there a more joyous moment between a father and son. Can you imagine that? Remember the lines of the old but good song, Trust and Obey. I put these on the screen. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word... What a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. You know that one by heart. I don't have to put it on the screen. Look at verse 4. We don't sing this one as much. But we never can prove the delights of his love 
until all on the altar we lay and the favor he shows for the joy he bestows or for them who will trust and obey. Two lessons I want us to learn from this story. Number one, your faith in God will be tested. Your faith in God will be tested. And then number two, your faithfulness to God will be rewarded. So your faithfulness to God will be tested, but your faithfulness to God will be rewarded. Again, James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. When you sign up for a class in college, you know there's going to be tests, an exam. You don't get to skip that. You have to take the test. You have to pass the test or you don't get the credit. When you want to fly a plane, you know there's going to be tests. There'll be a physical test. There'll be a uh, written test. There'll be flight tests. You understand that. When you become a Christian, there are tests you have to go through. And you need to know that up front, day one. To know there's a purpose for the test. God does not bring tests in your life to, to, so you can earn your salvation. Salvation is a gift from God. Jesus truly did pay it all. That is not why you were given a test or, or why you uh, passed the test. You don't earn your salvation. And God does not bring about tests so he can see or determine how strong your faith is. This is God we're talking about. God knows how faith you're strong, how strong your faith is or how weak your faith is. There are purposes, though, for God's test. Fill in the blank. Let me share a few with you. Number one, tests bring about maturity. Tests can bring about maturity. James 1, 3, and 4 says, You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, but endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God will put you to the test, allow you to go through those times that will stretch you, develop your spiritual muscle, so to speak. But secondly, tests provide a positive example to others. The world, your friends, they may not pay much attention to what you say or what you say you believe or even your spiritual choices. But when they see you going through a hard time and you maintain or even grow in your faith, they will notice that. They will see that. Your influence grows. For years, I have been blessed by spiritual mentors who have helped me in preaching and ministry. Uh, Gary Bradley, you've heard me mention his name. He's the preacher at the Mayfair Church of Christ. Uh, Gary's as old as my dad, and it's a big church, 1,500. But he would gather some of his younger ministers and tell us a lot about ministry. And it's probably to Gary's credit that I'm still in ministry because of how much he mentored me. Another mentor of mine is Bob Russell. Learn more about preaching and Bob Russell was able to sit at his feet many times before he retired. I want to share a story that he revealed one time. One time he was uh, actually helping a, a graduate class. And in that class there were preachers that were taking a course. And uh, through that time there were several of them, some as young as 20, some in their 50s. He knew one guy in particular, his name was Wayne Jocelyn. He described Wayne like this. Wayne loved the Lord, served him well, but was not the most gifted man in the group. Well, all these students in this class, they would bring a video recording and that they would play at different points in the week and then all the class members would listen and then critique. Not the most comfortable exercise, but it's good and it helps you to grow with that. So they did that throughout the week. At the end of the week, it was time for Wayne's recording to be played. He began his sermon by telling that their first child was just several weeks old when it died. 
Then he went on to say that they had a second child, a boy. When he was several months old, he and his wife went through. They knew something was seriously wrong, so they took their son to the doctor. And their worst fears were confirmed. Their little boy was severely mentally handicapped. He would not be able to walk. He could not control his neck movements. He would not be able to communicate. He would live all of his life strapped in a wheelchair. But the doctor did encourage them, said this is so rare and that shouldn't prevent them from maybe having more children. So they had another child, a little girl. In several months, the doctor confirmed she had the same problem. Well, five minutes had played, but nobody was critiquing a sermon. They were all captivated with what Wayne was saying. He said, when the little girl was 12, she became sick, and we took her to the doctor and then to the hospital. We thought she would be the one who would make it. His voice quivered when he said, but she died. And we were devastated. Some of the men in the room were sniffling at this point, but they kept listening. When my son was 18, he got pneumonia. We took him to the doctor, then to the hospital. They said, young men should not die of pneumonia. So they put him on a respirator. He was on a respirator for nearly a year. $500,000 worth of hospital bills. And my son died. Fifteen minutes into the recording, this dad, Wayne, who had been in this group of men, had been heard to laugh the loudest. No one in that group knew what he had been through, especially those kinds of trials. And then in Wayne's sermon, he talked about how God had been faithful. And that that is why God, he was able to preach about God's keeping his promises. And he still preached about God's love and God's grace. They turned the recording off. All those talkative preachers were silent. Bob said he couldn't talk. He left the room to gain his own composure, went to the restroom, said to the Lord, God, I don't have any problems. Here's a man who has gone through the death of three children, two of them severely handicapped, and I think it's a big test to go into a mission field and be inconvenienced. He went back into the room, and the men were quietly talking about what had just happened. It was obvious that in everyone's opinion of Wayne had just shot through the roof. Bob told the men, I teach this class because I happen by the grace of God to preach at a church that is large. The Bible says that in heaven the last will be first, the first will be last. And I guarantee you that this man will be leading the parade of heaven and I will be given a name tag. When you endure a trial, God puts a spotlight on you and people are watching And if your faith endures, your example, your influence, your testimony, whatever you call it, it grows. Because people notice that. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among your Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, your your faith will be tested in a variety of ways. Let me just close with this. Number one, that it can come in the form of adversity. You know that already. When we think of tests, that's what we think of, difficulties. And it's true. And by the way, all the tests don't come from God. Some of your tests will come from Satan. You remember the verse, be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. We think of that as remaining faithful to our last breath. But that's not the context. 
is about you being faithful when you're suffering to the point of death. Look at the whole verse, Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. So some tests will come from Satan, and there'll be a variety of trials, of adversities. Some like Wayne Jocelyn, some like Abraham, some like Job. Number two, your test can come in the form of prosperity. We expect adversity. Maybe we, we anticipate that. But maybe we don't think about prosperity as being a test. But it can be one of the most severe tests you can go through. Jesus said in Mark 10, 25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Thomas Carlyle, the English essayist, put it like this. For every man you find who can withstand prosperity, I will find you a hundred who can withstand adversity. There is something about success that lulls people away from God. Think of the people in the Bible who could pass the test of suffering, but they failed the test of prosperity. King Saul, King David, King Solomon, Samson. And the same is true for us today. When you experience success, when that comes your way, when you're the one chosen, when people know your name, when your business thrives, when your bank account grows, can you still put him first? Do you still depend 100% on him? Can you still be generous? Can you still be humble? Not many people can climb the ladder of success without losing their spiritual equilibrium. Prosperity can truly be a test of faith. And then number three, your faith may be tested by the sacrifice of family. I think especially of children, because I'm thinking of Abraham here. I was told this summer about some parents who, when they learned their grown children, trying to make their career choice of life, finishing college, had decided to go into missions into another country, that made a lot of trouble for their child. They didn't want their child to go. What would you do if that was your child and they wanted to go serve the Lord in another country? Now, I know as parents, sometimes you're thinking, take them. But that's because they're acting up. It has nothing to do with missions. But what was your son, your daughter, your grandchildren that you wouldn't see maybe once a year and then for a short amount of time? Do you believe enough that you can encourage your child to make such a decision? And then number four, your faith may be tested by the threat of persecution. Jesus commanded his disciples to go into all the world with the good news. That's the way Matthew's gospel ends. And the way the book of Acts begins, you only get into chapter four, you read about Peter and John being arrested because of them telling the good news of Jesus. And you remember they were told you had to stop teaching about this Jesus. And you remember their answer? We cannot not talk about Jesus. We would rather obey God rather than men. Peter and John were arrested and then let go. But James was beheaded. Persecution is a real thing. How much do you really believe? I think those who see, serve and teach in our public school, you face this every day. And then number five, your faith may be tested by the threat to your own health, your own security. Look at that list. Adversity, prosperity, 
sacrifice of family, persecution, risking security health. But listen to James. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the tests, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. We're going to sing a song of invitation to encourage you to think about where you are in your relationship with the Lord. What he wants most of all is for you to believe in him, that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. And believe him enough that you'll confess that faith to others, that he'll make you a new creation in baptism as he gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it all begins and it's all about your belief. Do you believe? If you're already a child of God, maybe as we sing this song, your prayer to God would be, Lord, help me to pass the tests in whatever form it comes that I would believe in you more than all the stuff in this life. If we can pray for or help you in any way, why don't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you.